I think I had a clear outline and that gave me more confidence to, you know, create variations on what I had in the outline. If you know where you're going and you can afford to make diversions and, and change your mind and alter things. Uh, so I always want to leave myself enough room to respond to that character uh, in that particular situation in that particular moment of time. And it's no good imposing your own views on it, particularly as I have strong political views, and this has got a lot of politics in it. Welcome to the Become a Writer Today podcast with Brian Collins. Here you'll find practical advice and interviews for all kinds of writers. Are you ready to write a psychological thriller? My guest today is Brian Finney. Brian is a professor of English at California State University, and he's written multiple non-fiction books. But back in 2019, he did something interesting. He transitioned from writing biography and from writing non-fiction, and he wrote his first psychological thriller, Money Matters. Last year, during the pandemic, he wrote Dangerous Conjectures, which is out at the time of recording this interview. And I wanted to catch up with Brian to understand how he made the transition from writing nonfiction to writing fiction. And one of my takeaways from this interview is how Brian manages his day. Many writers, you know, work on the side uh, while they're working a busy or demanding day job. That's what I did. I used to get up early in the morning to write or write in the evening. But Brian has actually gone the other way. He's now a professor emeritus at California State University, which essentially means that he doesn't lecture in the university anymore. So he has free time during the week to write his psychological thriller books. So I was interested how somebody would approach having a huge chunk of extra free time to write. So I dug into Brian's writing process with him and to figure out how much time he spends writing, how he gets himself into a state of flow. Preview, he doesn't, he just sits down and starts writing. And also his approach to problems like writer's block. If you enjoyed this interview, you can leave a short review on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you're listening. And if you really enjoy it, you could also consider supporting it on Patreon. And for a couple of dollars a month, I'll give you discounts on my writing courses, software, and books. Now let's go over to the interview with Brian. So Brian, you're a professor of English in a university in California, but you're also a fairly prolific fiction writer. Could you give listeners a flavor for how you got into writing fiction and your background? Well, I wrote nonfiction while I was teaching in the university system. And then to my surprise, as soon as I uh, became a professor emeritus and was had free time and free choice, I discovered that I really wanted to practice what I'd been preaching. And I'm not even sure how I got into the first novel, but it gripped me uh, very quickly. I think you know, what was most important was the tone. I acquired a voice early on for it. And it was the voice of, incidentally, someone very different from me. She was American, not English. She was 27 and not old. And she was female, not male. And that distance actually enabled me to discover a voice that went with it. And the novel almost wrote itself, I would say. So would you say you're Professor Emeritus, being somebody who's not, who's not in a university, does that mean that you don't lecture full-time, that you have more free time during the week to write. Exactly, exactly. Uh, in fact, at the moment, I'm not, not teaching at all. Okay. And I really enjoy the freedom. And of course, we've also had the, the pandemic, which uh, would have meant that I wasn't going to be in the campus at any rate. Yeah. Uh, so what, what does your writing process look like, or did it look like for Dangerous Conjectures? 
For Dangerous Conjectures, I started off with a day-by-day account of this couple who live in the Bay Area. That's, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area but on the east side in Oakland. And um, it lasted uh, from something like, oh, I, I can't remember exactly, but from January the 20-something until March the 13th of 2020. So it spanned the duration when the pandemic was just beginning to make itself known until the moment when close down happened. And I wanted to avoid, you know, going beyond that because uh, I didn't want to get the whole thing too dated. Uh, I mean, I wanted a specific date because I always set my characters against a political background. And this was a very specific political background, the primaries. And I alternated between the two major characters, Adam, who's a computer scientist at Berkeley, and Julia, who works for the ACLU, that's the American Council of Civil Liberties in San Francisco. And they have a young daughter. So, you know, each day it wouldn't necessarily move from one to the other, but most days it would move from one to the other character. Um, and that's how the first draft looked. And then I had a, a very good line editor look at it for me. And she said, it reads like a diary. And I said, I didn't write a diary. I didn't mean it to be a diary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, we both agreed, how about eliminating the dates and uh, turning first person into third person? And that worked really well, although it took <laughs> it took a lot of people to finally get rid of all the I's and me's. <laughs> I kept on missing them. So well, that's reassuring for people who aren't an English professor that even you had to go through that kind of level of revision. Did you actually outline the story in advance or did you sit down to write? You did. I did. uh, What did your outlining process look like? It was a very, very much a a summary of, you know, date, person speaking, what they did or what they were going to do or, you know, what interchange occurred and nothing more. I mean, because I know that once you start writing, the actual situation takes over and that's much better to leave yourself that freedom to respond to the demands of the situation, whatever that happens to be. Okay. And did you spend long working on the outline of your book before writing the first draft? Probably a month. The the whole book wrote itself fairly fast. And the revision process took probably longer than the the initial writing. It sounds like you you did the revision as well last year in 2020. Uh, Yeah. Yes, correct. Everything was done in 2020. And did you spend many hours on a given day working on dangerous conjectures, like a lot of writers would say three hours is the most that they can spend on a, on a creative project. I would say on average that I probably spent two to three hours a day, but I'm not somebody who religiously sits down at nine o'clock and won't let me, you know, myself get up until 12 and have written X number of thousand words or anything like that. I, I'm much more intuitive about it than that. I prefer to be intuitive about it. And if I'm not in a good mood for writing, then I I don't write, and I'm not worried that that's going to recur the next day or anything, or I've got writer's block, which I've never had yet. Okay, okay. And the revision process, apart from changing the point of view and removing the dates, what other changes did you make? Well, as you can hear, I I have an English accent. I speak with a lot of English expressions, and I had an American couple. So I had a lot of friends, American friends and editors, go through this uh, in order to rid it finally of any taint of, you know, anglicized expressions. That took a lot of doing, actually. And I also had somebody pointed out to me that Liz, the young girl, who's only like 
12 years old, her vocabulary was too adult, and I had to alter all of her conversation to bring it down to a 12-year-old's kind of conversation. Other than that, sort of individual, you know, objections by indivi- by people, don't you think, you know, so, don't you think so-and-so would be angry at this point? Would they just accept this? Or don't you think they've reconciled too easily? And I that would cause me to write maybe a very, very much longer series of scenes in order to make that uh, credible. I understand this book and your last book both draw on conspiracy theories and they also draw on current events, like you mentioned, the pandemic. What is it about current events and conspiracy theories that drives you to write stories? I like to set my fictions in a specific political and historical context. I mean, the previous one, Money Matters, was was set during the uh, midterm elections when uh, the governor of California was up for re-election. And one of the characters uh, actually is running against the governor of California who who won it, you know. And it's because I don't think that any of us lead our, our lives isolated from what's going on politically and socially around us, particularly if you look at, you know, the consequences of the conspiracy theory that I used in the book, which was QAnon. Um, and I, I took QAnon, uh, I, I actually adopted this as the conspiracy theory I wanted before any, any of my friends even knew what it meant or what it was about. Uh, I mean, back in, we forget how, although it started in 2017, nobody really knew anything about it until mid-2020, by which time I was over halfway through, you know, you know writing the, the book. And I have the conspiracy theory as tied in with a Trump-like White House. In other words, what actually happened politically is that Trump sort of pussyfooted it around the theory, saying there's nothing wrong with it, but not actually subscribing to it. In the book, uh, it's very much in, in league with uh, the White House, the theory is. When you're researching a book like this, do you keep note of what's happening in the news and like write stuff down and gather your research in one place or are you just aware of it and it's kind of background information that you work into your book naturally? In the first place, I'm aware of it because I'm particularly during 2020, we were all listening to far too much and reading yeah. far too much news. <laughs> it was driving me crazy. But then when I got to a specific moment in the novel where I needed something specific like, you know, how many cases had, uh, were there in China by this point or whatever, then I could just look it up on, online. And I did a lot of looking up online. It required quite a bit of research. In terms of your writing tools, do you gather your research and write it all in Word or do you have some other workflow? Could you describe how it works? I write it all on, on Word. In uh, Word. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I try and make it all digital. Okay, okay. So when you've written your first draft, you sent it to your editor. You've gotten feedback from your editor. You mentioned you sent it to some friends. Were there any other things that you asked them to look for apart from the voice of the 12-year-old girl character? Yes, well, particularly I I asked my women friends to consider Julia's reactions and responses and behaviour generally, uh, because Julia is particularly, what shall I say, disturbed by the rise of the coronavirus and for the first time in her life, she actually fears for her, for her life. She's actually afraid of death. And this is something that all of them could easily at least um, understand and, you know, come back to me about. I Obviously, Adam, being a computer scientist, is closer to me, you know, a literature 
professor rather than a computer scientist professor. So I didn't need as much help with him. But then I also had another character, uh, a boyfriend from Julia's past who comes up and turns into a kind of stalking menace to the entire family. And again, I needed help with with him because he he certainly was very very different from what I am. And so I welcomed, particularly, I welcomed uh, suggestions from uh, a younger generation like my nephew who's in his 40s and so on. This is your second fiction novel. Did you make any changes to your writing process compared to your first novel? I'm just, just thinking back for a minute. I think I had a clear outline and that gave me more confidence to, you know, create variations on what I had in the outline. If you know where you're going and you can afford to make diversions and, and change your mind and alter things. Uh, so I always want to leave myself enough room to respond to that character uh, in that particular situation in that particular moment of time. And it's no good imposing your own views on it, particularly as I have strong political views, and this has got a lot of politics in it. What about the transition from writing nonfiction? Because you, you've written a lot of nonfiction books over the years, and I'm sure as an English professor, uh, like that's what you're pretty much doing for a part of your job as well. So how did you find transitioning from nonfiction to fiction? Surprisingly easy in one sense, but I, you know, having spent my lifetime talking about other people's fiction and you know and, and analyzing it and showing how it works and so on, I, I was surprised at some of the factors that really matter when you're writing that don't matter when you're criticizing, when you're analyzing. And in a way, I wish I'd done it the other way around. <laughs> I wish I'd so you written first and then criticised. That's right, because then yeah. I, I would have been a better, better uh, critic analyst. But even then, the one thing I, I did notice is that when you're writing nonfiction, there's very, you leave yourself very little room for variation or divagation or whatever. You, I mean, it, it's all planned very carefully and held tightly together because it's an argument primarily, or a series of arguments in a non-fiction book. So I like the freedom that fiction offered by comparison. The books, Dangerous Conjecture, and your previous book, Money Matters, did you read books in these genres before you decided to write fiction? No, I didn't. I mean, in fact, I wasn't even quite sure what genre it was going to come out as. In fact, the genre, uh, you know, for Dangerous Conjectures, you could call it a psychological thriller, you could call it a political thriller, you could call it a drama, a family drama, yeah. <laughs> so on. It looks like a psychological thriller based on the cover. So uh, did you decide in that genre with your publisher or did that something that evolved? Yeah, I, I have, uh, I, I use a publicist. She basically said, look, this genre is going to, you know, if you put it in that genre, there's too many there and it'll just get lost in the morass. And we, we finally sort of honed down to psychological thriller as being probably the, the most, you know, accurate and yet specific genre to label it. But it is other things as well. Did you discover any conventions of the psychological thriller genre that you had to include something to keep the readers happy? Not at all. And I, I don't believe you should be dictated to by, by the conventions of a genre. Um, I mean, you, you know, if you're very heavily into what, uh, a particular genre, yes, you can, you can use that knowledge to, uh, what should I say, write against it or write partly with it and partly against it. But I wasn't specifically writing within one genre. So I didn't, I didn't let it affect me. 
do you believe you write more fiction after Dangerous Conjectures once you've finished promoting it? You know, I, I didn't even know I was going to write Dangerous Conjectures until I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't, I haven't yet started writing anything else, uh, but I did have um, one of those moments where you wake up in the middle of the night and I, I thought, next time I am determined to have somebody who's much closer to me as one of the major characters so that I don't have, so I can actually use my own voice and not have to eliminate all the anglicisms from it. And I thought, how about a situation where you have an, an elderly guy living on his own out here and a homeless woman and her child decide to park permanently outside their front gate and you know they would change from the confrontation to eventually he's getting to know her so well that he invites her in but it, it would be about the disparity in wealth that governs all our societies today because he would be very affluent and she would be completely on her with with no money at all um, and it would be that confrontation between those two lifestyles and two personalities I don't know, that might turn into a Gorku, it might not. Yeah. Well, you're giving away the premise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't mind the premise. It's what I mean, what holds people is the actual working, working out evolution of, you know, that changing relationship and that changing understanding of, of each other and so on. Yeah, yeah. So just go back to when you were working full-time as a busy English professor in California State University. Did you always have it at the back of your mind that when I have more free time, I'm going to write fiction, or did it take a pandemic for you to to make the leap? Uh, no, I, I wrote the first one before the pandemic, uh, okay. but I, no, I didn't. You know, I wish I wish there'd been a blinding flash moment. You know, <laughs> a kind of a road to, to Damascus or something, um, where oh, I I thought I got to you know do this. It, it somehow I, I somehow elided into i can't i can't describe it i suddenly found myself writing it and there was there was no clear moment yeah and do you still write nonfiction today i write uh, i i mean i write a lot of reviews and op-ed like things yes i, I am not i don't intend if, uh, yet or at the moment writing uh, a non-fiction book yeah so uh, one thing i'm curious as is as an english professor like you're very knowledgeable about literary genres all the great writers and authors that are out there do you sometimes feel like you know an awful lot and it's very hard to figure out where to start because <laughs> could, could too much knowledge be a curse i guess when you're engaged in anything creative you know in a way you have to almost forget that i mean the dangerous conjectures is a quotation from hamlet and there is a very 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 light motif of of hamlet references throughout the book but maybe half a dozen or something in the entire novel um, but that's about as far as it goes in drawing on my, you know, literary expertise. Yeah. I was reading an interview with an Irish author today, and he was saying that he, he got lucky with his first book. It became a, a bestseller, and he, he made a living out of it for a few years, but he didn't know what he was doing. So when he tried to write the second book, he found he didn't have any of the skills he needed to write another book. So he had to learn them all, and he had to go and start by writing short stories. And Yeah, that's tough. No, I mean, I've never found the writing process, I've always found easy. I mean, I can think onto the computer without any problem. And that really helps. And it's, it's not, I mean, I guess it's just the result of a lifetime of being in the you know, literary world. Any reactions from your former students? 
Um, I had one or two who were absolutely astonished that <laughs> they said, oh, my God, I looked this up and I realized this was the person who taught me. <laughs> yeah. But they were complimentary. They were nice. And what about promoting the book? What strategies have helped you sell copies of Money Matters or, or are helping you with Dangerous Conjectures? Well, um, nowadays, you have the author has to do an awful lot of work, whether they're published by even one of the top five New York publishers or they're self-published. It doesn't matter. They have to push it. And this is why I have hired a very good young publicist of indie fiction, one sort or another. And she fixes me up with a lot of interviews like uh, we're having today. Um, she, she gets a lot of reviews, a lot of, um, she gets the book mentioned in podcasts. She gets uh, news releases on, you know, local TV stations. But as you know, <laughs> you could do as much as you like of that. But unless it catches, it'll, you know, it'll be noticed. It'll, it'll have a respectable sales, but it won't actually be It'll disappear within a week, within a year or two. I mean, it'll go. Yeah. Anyway. Have you have you considered writing a series or a sequel? You know, I haven't. I mean, it's very very popular, uh, and an awful lot of authors do it because they can gradually build an audience and and then appeal to that audience and offer the earlier ones for free or something in order to get them. I mean, it's, it from a selling point of view, having a sequence is a very good idea, but. So far, I mean, neither of the two sets of characters that I've had in these two books really offer themselves for a, a, a further a further book, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Um, and it sounds like you're enjoying having more free time to, to spend it. a few hours a day writing every day. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I do. I do. And, and, and also, you know, being able to do it when you want and not having to do it when you don't want to, then that, yeah. that's, that's really important, I think. Yeah. Well, what advice would you give to somebody who doesn't have that free time at the moment? Oh uh, well, when when I taught, you know, when I taught, I would do most of my writing during the summer vacation, uh, and I, you know, I would do all the research and all the preparatory work whenever I could in the year. But I gave myself the summer. But not everybody has a big summer vacation like the academics do. And all I can say is, you know, I suspect if I were in a you know full time job with no vacation of that kind. I would set aside one period during the weekend, every weekend, you know, to do it. When, when at least you've got enough, you know, it, it's no good trying to do it in half-hour snatches or anything. That wouldn't, doesn't work. You have to have a continuity where the drama of, the, of what you're writing about takes over and dictates to you what people say and do. Where you can immerse yourself into the story for a little longer. Yes, exactly. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Um, and then to go the other way, if somebody is just about to go into a stage in their life where they can write all day, what should they need to know? They need to know that you need to give yourself a break as well, that you don't, don't want to spend eight hours a day writing or what have you, that it's not going to be necessarily productive. Um, and that it's quality that counts and not quantity. And that, you know, you don't have to necessarily push yourself so much because you've got all the time in the world and when it's right it works better when you know when you feel like writing the writing is going to be better than when you don't feel and make yourself right do you have any techniques or strategies you use to get yourself into like a state of creative flow or focus when you're working on a first draft no 
<laughs> I, seriously, I, I don't have any more. I just sit down the computer, open it up, and read what I last wrote, you know, and that, that naturally invites the next bit. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm overthinking it. Yeah, some people say that, well, I say I use noise cancelling headphones. And I know, I know. Music. Yeah. yeah. I, I, was, I was brought up in a boarding school where, you know, you had to do your homework in the same room that people were playing ping pong and listening to the radio and fighting. And so I'm not put off by any type of extraneous activity or noise. So it's condi- it was conditioning. Brian, where can people find more information about you or where can they buy your books? I have a very extensive website, um, which is at bhfinney.com, bhfinney.com. And they can find my books, both of my novels, on, on Amazon. Uh, all they need to do is put the, the title, the name of the title, Dangerous Conjectures, in this case, and it'll come up. And that's B.H. Finney with two N's. Oh, yes. B-H-F-I-N-N-E-Y. B-H Finney.com. Yep. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you did, please consider leaving a short review on the iTunes store or sharing the show on Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you're listening. More reviews, more ratings and more shares will help more people find the Become a Writer Today podcast. And did you know for just a couple of dollars a month, you could become a Patreon for the show? Visit patreon.com forward slash become a writer today or look for the support button in the show notes. Your support will help me record, produce and publish more episodes each month. And if you become a Patreon, I'll give you my writing books, discounts on writing software and on my writing courses. Thank you.